Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner & Smith Incorporated. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I bring an old friend into the studio to chat about all things economics. Martin Barnes is the chief economist at BCA Research, where he has been a senior editor, managing partner, and essentially grand poopah, more or less for the past 30 years. I know Martin for a long time. He's a fishing buddy. He's somebody I've been friendly with um, personally for, for a while. I am not only entranced by his thick Scottish brogue, I wish uh, I could have gotten him to curse. Uh, it is hilarious when you hear him drop the occasional uh, bomb uh, in a heavy Scottish accent. It's, he wants to be taken seriously when he curses, but it's just so hilarious uh, when you hear it, if you're a friend of his and you manage to make him curse, we just fall off our seats laughing. He is an, an incredibly insightful person when it comes to the inner workings of the Federal Reserve. He has been, if not an insider, so certainly someone with the inside track as to the thought process of various Fed governors and various Fed chair people. Uh, he is just one of those folks that has been around long enough and, and been in the right place at the right time to have really learned a lot of things. So if you are interested in various economic thoughts, if you're interested in what drives the Fed and, and perhaps what the Fed should be doing instead of what they are doing, Martin Barnes is your guy. With no further ado, my conversation with Martin Barnes. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Martin Barnes. He is the chief economist at BCA Research, which he joined in 1987. Uh, 18 of those years was as the managing editor of the well-regarded Bank Credit Analyst, which is their flagship publication. Uh, Martin Barnes, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. Pleasure to be with you. This is your first time in this building, huh? It is my first time. Very exciting. Yes, nice yes, building. It is. So, so let's jump right into your background. Uh, you began your career as an economist for British Petroleum for BP. Is that right? That's right. So what was that like? That, that means I've been working as an economist for forty-three years, which means I'm a very confused person. I was going to say, after forty-three years, you should be pretty good at it. No, no, no. You go in the other direction. You go in the other direction. All right. So, so what was the the job at BP like? What did you do? Well, for I joined their forecasting division, uh, which is part of their corporate planning department trying to figure out uh, where global economic growth was going and then forecasting energy demand and within that oil demand, of course. And that was a key input into BP's planning process. <laughs> but of course, when I joined in January 1973, oil was $3 a barrel, had been for a long time. And of course, all future projections were based on the assumption that oil would be $3 a barrel. And by the end of 1973, guess what happened? We, we had an oil embargo, and I recall oil spiked to something like 12. 9 $10, yeah, 12 up to 12 whatever. So everything was turned upside down. So that was a wonderful learning experience. To, to say the least. <laughs> and then uh, a few years later in 1987, you came to North America. No, no, no. no. I, I then, uh, I was with BP for five years. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, moved to a brokerage firm in the UK. Equivalent of a Wall Street firm. Right. I was an economist with a UK broker firm, which actually got me back to Scotland, which mm -hmm. was nice because their research was based in Edinburgh. So it would be like moving from London, uh, sorry, from New York to Boston kind so, of thing. So <laughs> how did you go from from London to Scotland to Vancouver and here in North America? Well, so five years in London with BP, then I was came across this opportunity to join this firm called Wood Mackenzie, which is a brokerage firm, mm -hmm. research based in, in Edinburgh, although they traded in London, was with them for 10 years and was headhunted by BCA in 1987. Chance to, gosh, come to Canada. Why the heck would I want to do that? But 
after con- thinking about it, took the move and never looked back, really. And, <clears throat> and you made that move in 1987. Was that anywhere near the 87 crash? Oh, it- well, I accepted the job before the crash. I, mm-hmm. I accepted the job job in August. The last piece of research I wrote for my previous employer, Wood Mackenzie, was called After the Crash, What Would Happen? And then I moved to Canada in November, so just one month after the crash. Did <clears throat> the, the 87 Black Monday, did it interfere? Did you say, maybe I uh, don't oh, have a job offering? No, 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 not at all. They were excited about it. Yeah, sure. And um, so so let's talk a little bit about the work you've been doing for BCA Research for 30 years. You spent 18 years being the editor of uh, the Bank Credit Analyst. Tell us about that publication. Well, BCA is a very interesting, I think it's a pretty unique firm. It's the most unlikely firm because it's based in Montreal, which is, of course, a mm-hmm. financial backwater. But it's been around since 1949. It's a pure research firm, doesn't manage money, doesn't trade, there's no proprietary stuff going on. All we're selling is research. So it's 100% focused on trying to figure out where the markets are going. And it's a pretty intense place. Uh, When I joined, it was tiny. I was employee number 14. Mm -hmm. Now we're more than 10 times bigger than that in terms of employees. But the focus is still the same. We're still trying to, still 30 years later, still trying to figure out where the markets are going. So (laughs) so who are the clients of BCA? Who's the typical, describe what the typical client is like. We're pretty much all institutional these Mm -hmm. days, which was not the case when I joined. When I joined... Um, maybe thir- a third of the clients were high net worth. They're kind of been priced out of. We adopted a different business model, so we're right. we're kind of institutional now, We've and it's the full range. Everything from finger snapping, hedge funds, how can you make me money this afternoon, to slow moving <laughs> state pension funds, mm-hmm. you know, and everything in between. So that sounds interesting. So and I'm very global, by the way. I should point out, although we're based in Canada. For historical reasons, that's just where the company began. Inertia is a very powerful force, and we just stayed there. But um, you know, half of our client base is probably outside North America. C- come for the high taxes, stay for the miserable winters. That's there the that's the uh, the marketing campaign for. Some, although where you are, some, I, li- Vic- I now live in Victoria, British Columbia. But my BCA is still based in Montreal, and that's where my job is based. Basically, uh, you, your climate is quite delightful. You're it you is. have a very similar climate to Seattle and Portland. It's no less rain, it's less it, rain, much and less it rain. just just uh, as opposed to Scotland, where plenty of rain. You said you were you don't know the day you were the exact weather of the day you were born. But it's a fair probably guess it was raining, raining. Yeah, right? Raining. <laughs> so, what's the what's the your favorite part of your job? What do, what do you like that you uh, what do you like to do the most as part of uh, BCA research? Oh gosh, I mean, I look, I've been there twenty nine years, and if there was anything I really didn't like, I would have left a long time ago. So, I write, and it's always cool when you can come up with uh, a new angle on something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy writing. I enjoy speaking. Standing up in front of a crowd of people, giving my views is is fun. Traveling, visiting, talking with clients. Uh, I can't see there's any part of it I don't like. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Martin Barnes. He is the chief economist at BCA Research, a firm he's been working at for, let's round it up and call it 30 years. Uh, and let's let's talk a little bit about the global economy. So where are we? If you have to pick one, is it inflation, deflation, or disinflation? Well, showing that I'm a true economist, I'm going to have to give you the it depends answer. You know, okay. I mean, if you're in you know, the manufacturing sector or you're a taxi driver, you would say it's deflation mm-hmm. because it's tough, it's competitive, and prices in your business are falling and in some cases, may have been falling for a while. Um, if you're the a parent, um, you know, paying for your kids' kids' college education, or you've got a lot of healthcare expenses, you know, you you just see the world as horrendously inflationary. And if your wife is like my wife, she'll just laugh at you at any suggestion that there's deflation because she'll beat you up and tell you how much everything has gone up in price. So, since last time she went to the grocery the, store. The so joke- there's different percent. We're not, look, in aggregate, we are not in a deflationary, we don't have absolute deflation. 
but it feels deflationary in a lot of places, and there's a little pockets of, of inflation. Um, but it's a very different world from the inflationary 70s, of course. For so, sure. The, the joke <laughs> I've heard is we have inflation in the things we need, and we have deflation in the things we want. Which I thought was kind of it. So uh, that's a kind of a, a kind of cute way of putting it. Another way of thinking about it is that the things that we spend money on day to day or week to week, month to month, tend to have inflation, and the things that we only buy occasionally, very occasionally fall in price. You know, so refrigerators, TVs. Mm-hmm. So you don't notice that. But you sure as heck notice if your parking fees have gone up this right. week. So, uh, but so, there's there small amounts of money to compare to the price of a refrigerator. So let's talk a little bit about um, commodities. So uh, two years ago, the uh, price of oil was over 100 bucks, And now here we are with OPEC having a conversation and oil can barely maintain a, a $40 handle. <laughs> What's the commodity story? Is that a dollar story or is that a supply story or something else? One of the first things you learn in economics uh, at school is, you know, it's a supply-demand curve and, you know, increased supply relative to demand and price falls and vice versa. So we have a massive amount. commodities more than anything else, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, respond to to price signals. Raise the price of wheat, what are farmers going to do? They'll grow so much wheat, they'll be giving it away in street corners after the Mm -hmm. next harvest. Some commodities, the cycles are a bit longer because if you have to find the stuff and dig the mines, et cetera, maybe it takes a few years. But commodities respond to prices. And, you know, we have... And sometimes these cycles are really long. So we had a 20-year bear market, if you like, in in commodities um, from the early 80s into the early 2000s to the point where prices got so low, you know, open a copper mine, are you nuts? So we starved the, commod- the resource sector of resources. Mm-hmm. Who wants to be a mining engineer when you can be a, an investment banker? Who wants <laughs> to open a copper mine? So when demand picked up, particularly driven by China, the supply just wasn't there. Price, so then we had this powerful bull market, 10-year bull market. Guess what? As prices went, it became more attractive to find the stuff. So the supply responded, as it always does, and then we ended up with too much supply, and then prices went down. The bull markets tend to be much shorter than the bear market. So we had 10-year bull market followed by 20-year bear market historically has kind of been like that. And... If that is still true, um, prices, yeah, we're only pretty early stage of, of a bear phase. There's still quite a lot of supply out there. Oil's a little bit different. Um, still a ton a, of supply, fracking, still, still the same. The, you, know, you have a geopolitical overlay with oil that you don't have with other products, but it's still the same story. And, of course, because of shale, it's changed things. Uh, we, we believe, I guess most people, you know, believe that once you get into the 50s, 55 and above, shale becomes very uh, competitive again. Mm-hmm. And it turn, you can turn shale on and off much more quickly than deep water oil. So oil's capped. Shale puts a cap. A price on cap on, on oil. So you don't see oil going over $60 a barrel no. anytime in the next couple Absent of years. some short-term geopolitical stuff. Uh, and yeah, and what absolutely. about natural gas, which it seems that oh, we're just finding story. endless supplies. Exactly. You know, what was it? few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, wasn't it? They found enormous reserves in Texas, the biggest field. Right. Just yeah, It so. just seems like it's an almost inexhaustible. It's, it's and, shocking. And the, the whole shale uh, technology hasn't really been exploited aggressively outside the U.S. We're still early stages of that. Yeah. So, so, I, so I wouldn't be a bull of commodities. No, they're not going to fall forever, and you can have short-term moves. But, you know, the very long-term, and BCA, we love long-term stuff. Um, you know, you do a 200-year chart of real commodity prices, and mm-hmm. that just trends steadily down. And any spikes are short-lived wars, supply disruptions, right. et cetera. So is that a story <clears throat> of, of improving technology and technology, exploration? Absolutely. So you referenced <clears throat> China earlier. Uh, I have to ask, how significant is China to the demand for commodities? And when they begin to cool off, how impactful is China on falling commodity prices? It's not hugely impactful for oil. But 
has been massively uh, significant for metals, where Copper. in some cases, 50% of global demand has come from China. Now, the standard story for China is it has to and has begun to uh, orient, else, orient itself away from manufacturing, construction, more towards services. This is a long, slow process. But over They still time, have half the country working on the farms, right? Yeah, Some crazy yeah. but number. But it should. I mean, their growth model should be a less commodity-intensive growth model going forward than it's been in the past. But it will continue to be a big player. And you've got India, you've got a bunch of other emerging economies that all want to industrialize more. So... The commodity story is an EM story for sure. Not just, not just China. Um, and things like auto ownership, home ownership, things that are commodity intensive are still at pretty low levels in a lot of countries like Vietnam and India compared to Western levels. And you've got to assume, you know, they want to get to where we are. So commodity demand will go up. Right? The issue is supply. That, in it's, other words, it's the big moves in supply that that cause it. You know, the big moves in in commodity prices. Not demand is much more steady. We had that crazy China boom, but you know, we're we're not going to have that again. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Martin Barnes. He is the chief economist at BCA Research, a pure research shop located up in. Uh, Montreal, Canada, but really they are a global institutional shop. Let's talk a little bit about the state of the labor market here in the United States. By the time this comes out, we will have just had yet another uh, non-farm payrolls report. Um, what do you see as the state of the labor market in North America and globally? Well, it's pretty good in North America, well, the U.S. particularly. Mm -hmm. um, you've created We've created a lot of jobs. The unemployment rate is back down to what most people would have called full employment any time within the last 10 years. Um, but if the labor market was really tight, you would have expected wages to be growing much more strongly than they have been. So that suggests that they're, we're not there yet in terms of a tight labor market. So I guess, uncomfortably, I have to side with Janet Yellen on this one. Mm -hmm. um, Which is something some I know you don't like to do. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get to wages, but before we get to wages, I have to ask a related question. So this, the traditional measure of unemployment is U3. We're at 4.9%. The broader measure is U6, which is... Uh, around 10%, right. and that's the measure of underemployment, yeah. which which leads to this question, how much underemployment, meaning either people working part-time who want to work full-time, or people taking low-paying jobs when they're really more qualified for a higher-paying job, how underemployed are we here in America? Your question you know, gives the answer in a sense that broader unemployment rate is still very high. A 10% unemployment rate implies that there's a lot of underemployment, mm -hmm. you know. So you have a lot of people who would like to be working full-time, who would like better paying jobs. So there is still slack in the labor market, and underemployment is one component of slack. And I think you have a, have a large number of people who have been forced to take jobs that are below their skill, well, below, below what they would like. So you referenced uh, a lack of wage pressure. Um, that seems to be a little bit of a mixed picture. We had the Census Bureau report not too long ago that showed 2015 saw a 5.3% increase in wages. Even with that record-setting one-year increase, we're still below wages of 1999, the median income Well, that's anyway. median family incomes. That's yes. not wages. That's like, you know, that takes a So how of. do you reconcile those two? The increase in wages and the median family income, um, we're still being so far below where we were. Fifteen, It's 15 years and we're still not back to where we were. Right. So, again, that's consistent with the, the slowest recovery on record. And although we have created a lot of jobs and brought the unemployment rate down, a lot of these jobs presumably are lower-wage jobs or people shifting from high-wage jobs jobs to lower wage jobs, full time to part time, and that's kept family incomes 
depressed, not even... not. E in a more typical economic cycle, if you had looked at what the unemployment rate had done, uh, what um, overall employment had done, you would have thought median family incomes would have done much better than mm -hmm. they had. But as you pointed out, we're still below levels of 10 years ago. So Yeah, they picked up last year. Great. Um, that's one year. That's one year. So <clears throat> let, let, let me ask the question differently. So Reinhardt and Rogoff in This Time is Different, 800 mm. Years of Financial Folly, make a distinction between the usual um, economic cycle and financial and, recessions. And right. A, a, yeah, a, yeah. a credit crisis mm, begets sure. a very different type of recovery. Absolutely. Ha, it, uh, you agree with their perspective? Oh, yes, absolutely. This, But it's actually been worse <laughs> than that. Um, so this isn't so, so, just... Look, so Rogoff was the chief economist at, at, the, at the IMF for a while. And mm -hmm. He did that. They did that research while still at the IMF. So they actually published stuff on financial recessions are different, recoveries are weak. Mm -hmm. They knew that at the IMF long before the the right oh seven oh eight came out. right yeah. right. Uh, so the IMF had bought into the idea that recoveries are weak after financial recessions. One of the charts I love to show. I use it every time I give a a speech to visit clients, and it's a total damnation of my profession, if you like. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't have a copy with, it, with me to show you, but it, it, it's incredible. You look at what the IMF was forecasting for global growth uh, in September 2011. They do their big forecasting rounds twice a year, but the big one is in the fall to mm -hmm. coincide with the IMF meetings. So September 2011, global growth was, they were saying it's around 4% at the moment, and it's going to get steadily better so by now, it was going to be five. They were forecasting close to 5% for 2016. Way wrong. So it's basically a line going up. And look at their latest projections, and we'll get some new ones in a couple of weeks. And basically, it's a line that goes straight down. They're now saying 3% for this year. And That's still it, it looks like the jaws of death, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's not just a one-year forecast error. Mm -hmm. They've got every year wrong so you can plot all the intervening forecasts and it's just that every year was revised down 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 so it, it, it's the most egregious forecasting error i could ever imagine because it persisted for five years and you can blame lots of one-off things mm -hmm. euro crisis earthquakes in japan and labor you know shut, government shutdowns in the u.s etc um but this has been an absolutely awful awful global recovery. I think you can explain it. So, and this is the IMF knowing that recoveries were weak after financial recession, but they still got it horribly wrong. And nobody in September 2011, by the way, was saying to IMF, oh, you guys are too optimistic. You'll not, it's never going to be that good. That was a, a bog standard consensus mm -hmm. view. So what's the problem? We underestimated the dead weight of debt. We underestimated just <laughs> the, the, the legacy of that bad financial uh, downturn. Um, we underestimated how cautious businesses would be uh, about capital spending. And I guess we had a lot of fiscal austerity, plus a whole series of, of, of shocks like the euro crisis. So the bottom line is they really did a terrible job despite having rogue off warning them hey this is going to be a really soft recovery yeah the, the whole profession did i wouldn't focus just on the abf you see the fed the oecd and most private sector economists i'm barry ritholtz you're listening to masters in business on bloomberg radio my guest today is martin barnes he is the chief economist at bca uh, research uh, they are the publishers of the bank credit analyst uh, a highly regarded and well-respected research shop let's Start talking about the Federal Reserve. Uh, you have been visiting the Fed for quite a long time. Tell oh, us about that. I think I first uh, started visiting Fed people in 1979. I was still living in, in the UK at the time, but part of my job was to follow the US, of course. So I just started coming over to the US and visiting the Fed. And I was fortunate enough, strangely, to get to go to Jackson Hole 18 times. I think there's not too many people that manage that. And I used to go and visit governors. I got fairly close to people like Don Cohen, etc. Mm -hmm. And I, pretty early on, talking to the Fed, visiting the Fed, I, I, I learned something that was made me feel good and, and, and bad at the same time. Um, you know, we have this, the, the Fed has this aura of, of, you know, omnipotence around them, you know, that yes. they've got all these smart people, they know what's going on. Um, 
That I wouldn't say, but... Yeah, well, <laughs> they used to have that image anyway, so that you go to the Fed and they're so much more knowledgeable and smarter than you. Well, I learned pretty early on that actually that is not the case. They may have lots of inside information and micro stuff, but when it comes to the really big questions, you know, when's housing going to peak or why are businesses... They have no more idea than you or I. And that's kind of cool because it means that your view is just as good as their view and they're actually quite interested to know what you think. So I thought that was good. It kind of levels the playing field. So I could I could have conversations with the Fed and my views were just as good as theirs. But then I thought, oh my God, this is not good because I don't know what's going on. I need them to know. And the fact that they don't know any more than me, but yet they're controlling monetary policy was really scary. Uh, and I think we have learned that. Their forecasting record has not been great. And it's been terrible. But then again, who, what economist forecasting <laughs> no, record has fine, been but we need, short of but terrible? We need our monetary policymakers to, to, to do better than us. We are, we are not raising or lowering interest rates. They are. So I would like them to know more than me. So <clears throat> more important than their forecasting, what, how accurate is their assessment of what's happening right now? Do they have a good read on the here and now. No, look, nobody knows what a year looks like um, out in the future, but... Well, their views on what's going on right now should be as good as anybody else's. Should be better because they, you know... Mm -hmm. You know, these regional presidents talk to their local business contacts, etc., etc. Um, the problem is that the models that they have relied on have led them astray, and that goes back to what I said about the IMF forecasts. That's just a, a, mm -hmm. a, a model... The, you know, the world, the past is no, is not as good a guide to the future as it used to be. And models are all based on the past. Mm -hmm. So they've been led astray by the models. I think they wrongly bought into this forward guidance commitment strategy. I think that's been a mistake. I think they Isn't that transparency much. in communication? Well, or? look, I remember the day, maybe you do, um, when... The Fed never even used to tell you when it had changed oh, policy. Right. You would find out rates had moved had to, because the market There was a whole moved. industry of economists analyzing the weekly money supply numbers to figure right. out what the Fed was doing. So that was too opaque. That made no sense. But they have gone way too far in the other direction. I don't think they should be publishing these dots. The dot plots are a waste of time. I think they're just wrong to do that. Mm -hmm. I think they talk too much. They, in their effort to create transparency and guide markets, have just created confusion. Do so you think a little mystery would actually help they the markets? Should, I would like to think that they should be able to say, "Look, you know, this is what we want to do. We're trying to, you know, get inflation at two. You know, a decent economy. We will, we will keep policy at the appropriate level for as long as necessary, and then just shut up." Really? Yeah. So so let me ask you. <laughs> so when you set these, we, we won't raise rates till the unemployment rate hits six and a half percent. And now I mean, it's, how dumb was that? <laughs> and now it's 4.9%. Exactly. Why do you constrain yourself with these commitments that when you're there's not so much honor. uncertainty in the world? Right. So let <clears> me <throat> ask you a, a question. You've used the phrase financial repression yes. in some of your writings. Yes. For, for some of the listeners who may not be familiar with that, brand of Fed criticism. <laughs> okay. What is financial repression? I've used it in a context of of, of of how do we deal with high levels of debt. You know, BCA, over the years, debt has been a big part of what, of what we write about. We, we I think we were the ones that created the debt super cycle term. Mm -hmm. You know, I joined in 87. We'd already been using it for probably... 10 years, or at least before that. Um, and the debt super cycle was just a story about ever rising levels of debt, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is over now. Um, but I still get asked probably more than any other question when I visit clients, how, what's the end game here of all this debt, whether it's private debt, government debt, how do we ever get rid of it? And it is interesting that debt to GDP ratios have continued to rise pretty much everywhere even though people are trying to deleverage. You cannot easily deleverage when growth is weak. Mm -hmm. um, so what's the end game? Is it default? Is it inflation? Can you grow out of it? Um, I think it's going to be hard to grow out of it. Nobody wants to default, unless you're Greece, perhaps. Um, <laughs> maybe inflation is the end game, but... Mm, Nobody really wants to truly inflate it away. So if you if you can't 
get rid of your debt, you just make it easy to live with. And how do you make it easy to live with? You have very low interest rates and you can you can sustain extraordinary high levels of debt for a very long time if your debt if your interest rates are as close to zero. So financial repression is really about keeping the costs of your debt down and perhaps through regulatory pressure is forcing people to buy your debt as well in terms of sovereign debt. So you can do that by forcing pension funds or or, or banks to buy government debt, higher capital ratios. So financial repression is artificially keeping down interest rates. We're speaking with Martin Barnes of uh, BCA Research. You mentioned uh, GDP to debt ratio. Nobody... Uh, at least no no solvent government has a higher uh, debt-to-GDP ratio than Japan, mm. now over 200%, and yet people are lending to them at negative interest rates. They have no problem borrowing what seems like an infinite amount of cash. How do you reconcile those two? Well, you're not lending to them, and I'm not lending to well, them. Well, somebody is. Yeah. So Japan financial system is effectively closed in a way in the sense mm -hmm. that it doesn't rely on foreigners mm -hmm. because I'm not sure any foreigners would buy it. Um, so it's just so the Japanese it's people? It's internally financed. Well, the Bank of Japan has actually been buying all the net issuance. Um, they've got a very aggressive QE program mm -hmm. um, that they're buying. But prior to that, um, you know, their postal savings uh, bank was buying pretty much uh, huge numbers of bonds. And their real bond yields, of course, they've had mild deflation, so their real bond yields were higher than their nominal yields. So bonds actually weren't as unattractive mm -hmm. as their low nominal yields would have suggested. Um, and the stock market crash in Japan, I mean, the, the Nikkei peaked at close to 40,000 in 1989. Yeah. You know, so here we are. Many years later, that's What's still a 30 well year bear market so, amongst friends. So the, re the retail investors of Japan uh, have been out of the stock market for a very long time. Right. So they're probably happier owning bonds than, than these risky things called equities. Even well, they, they, negative... have had, they have had no trouble uh, financing their deficits. None so, at all. So let's stay hmm. in the, that same part of the world. Uh, we look at China, where a lot of people are suggesting is the next debt bomb to blow up. How bad is the situation in terms of China's uh, being so heavily leveraged and carrying so much? Well, what people have, are worried about with the case of China is the very rapid increase in their corporate debt ratio. The BIS have warned about it. The IMF are worried about it. It's not that the level of debt even is is that high? I mean, as other countries, overall debt in China is still not as high as it is in other countries. It's just gone up so fast, so mm -hmm. quickly. So the question there is um, how much of it is kind of within the quasi-public sector? Because you've got a lot of state-owned enterprises. Yep. A lot of it is local authorities. Um, related to local authorities' activities in the real estate sector. It could all be socialized. Very the easy. Chinese government has the capacity to socialize it all. Meaning they can absorb a, the, the yeah, debt. Yeah, if you just treated it as all as one big giant public sector, and their overall public sector debt is actually quite low in, in, in China. So, so, so let I, me let me bring this back to the <clears throat> Fed, um, and let me let me ask you a counterfactual: What would the U.S. economy, what would the global economy look like if there wasn't the Fed's? program of quantitative easing and there wasn't zero interest rate policy, what would the world look like today? Well, most people would pat them on the back and I would too for, for their actions during the downturn. You mm -hmm. know, if they, I mean, if, if credit intermediation is totally frozen, you know, the global you economy just shuts down and right. it did. You know, you all saw the stories about the the ships backed up into Singapore Harbor. They uh -huh. couldn't be unloaded because there was no trade credit, et cetera, et cetera. So they had to do whatever was necessary to free to free up the the, the credit system. Um, and they did that. So QE1, absolutely. QE2. Maybe a little less? Uh, a little less, but, you know, the economy was kind of still looking a bit dodgy and... Yeah, that was probably okay. Q QE3, not so much. I think that was probably not necessary. 
Um, twist? You have Twist after that? Yeah. They've been in central banks generally, and I wouldn't just pick out the Fed, obviously the ECB, same, just getting increasingly desperate to, to try and get economic growth higher and doing more and more desperate things. It's unfortunate that I'm one of those who would agree that monetary policy has been asked to do more than it should have been asked to do, and it's a shame. Meaning that there should have been some fiscal policy at a certain point taking over from... Congress should have stepped in and, and said, okay, we got it from here, Federal Reserve, you, you've done your share. Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of hair shirt part of me that would argue, I think, that, look, we had 30 years, three decades of rapid credit growth, and I'm talking in the private sector here, mm -hmm. um, which in a sense stole growth from the future. Sure. And this is payback time. Um, so we've got this slow recovery, but it is an economic recovery. We're kind of growing at trend and to try and force, force it higher by creating, you know, distortions at asset markets, trying to restart a credit cycle when debt levels are already still too high, might not be the right thing to do. And maybe we should just accept, look, we're in a slow recovery. That doesn't mean that government shouldn't do anything and just set back. Oh, we've got issues of inequality and there's parts of the economy that are depressed. There's a lot we could do in the US and overseas to make policy more growth friendly without relying on monetary policy. Tax, tax reform, obviously. Is, I think regulations have become a big burden on a lot of small businesses. So we could do things to try and get a better economic outcome without just continuing to rely so much on monetary policy. The financial markets and economists generally are way too obsessed with monetary policy. If there's anything that drives me nuts these days, among many things do, but it's just this obsession with with when the Fed will raise rates and if the nuance of every utterance that comes out of these policymakers' mouths, it doesn't matter that much. We've been speaking with Martin Barnes. He's the chief economist at BCA Research. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things regarding the economy. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC. Welcome to the podcast extra. I'm I'm actually here with somebody who I think I know you for a decade, right? It must be about that. You you've been going to uh, Camp Kotak up in Maine since I've been going since '06. You have to have been going uh, maybe '07 or something. I, yeah. Uh, so I mean, that's where I similar, first met yeah, you. I think time, the '07 yeah. was the first year. You and I went first years were the were we're there together. Okay. That's always a ton of uh, a ton of fun. Um, before we get into our standard questions, I have a handful of um, things I have to uh, I have to get that that I missed um, on QE. Hmm. So you said QE one and maybe QE two was successful. Beyond that, well, it there's, was there's been diminishing returns from monetary stimulus generally, and yeah. I think we're at the point here, you know where whatever problems are out there facing the global economy or the U.S. economy, I, I don't believe it's anything to do with the level of interest rates. So when do you see those rates returning to normal? And what would you describe normal at? 2%, uh, 3%? Well, um, yeah, gosh. We used to think in the old days that you know, five, 4 or 5% was normal for the funds rate. How about and, the 10-year bond? Maybe it's 2 to 3. Well, the old rule of thumb was... Ten year plus inflation. Just the nom nominal growth, the nominal GDP growth was kind of a ballpark. Mm -hmm. And if trend growth was two and a half, and you had two and a half percent inflation, therefore four, to, five. four and a half ish yeah. would would be the right level for bond yields. Um, well, growth is lower now. Maybe we might still get the two percent inflation eventually, um, but it's probably you know three and a half to four, or That's even th normal. or even three. 
Yeah. And, and so let me put you on the spot because you're in the forecasting business. Yeah. So <laughs> what's the date when when the Fed funds rate hits 3%? 2018, 2019? Well, how far out do you see that happening? You, well, let me ask it different this way. 2016, are we going to see uh, an increase before the year's over? We're having this... This is late September 2016. Is there going to be a hike? I, I mean, I think they should. Uh, personally, I don't think it matters a whole lot. A 25 basis point hike Ooh, is, a half a percent is, interest is rate. Ne- neither here nor there. The, the economy doesn't really need it. I think they should do it just just to get it over with. So we'll, right. I mean, unfortunately, if if they do, we'll still have the will, they won't lay just push right. them to the next just the, Right, so but then the question. They, they've got to um, break this perception that they're slaves to the market. Yes. And if the market's not discounting it, we can't do it. And they've got to get over that. That that traces back to Greenspan, and I think it's a huge mistake the Fed made. And they've enough dissension within the Fed, I think, just in terms of keeping some of the discontents happy Mm -hmm. to do it that way as well. I think they're a little bit out of control um, in terms – Janet has lost control of of the group. Just because there were three uh, dissents, that's that. Uh, that looks like well, healthy just debate. Generally, just the amount of talking that goes on and different opinions. Too this much. Would, this would never have happened with Volcker. Well, uh, no, he Paul, you know, and it wouldn't even have happened with Ben Bernanke, actually. And what about Greenspan? Uh, would it happen with Greenspan? Remember, Greenspan. No, no, no. I mean, the, there was a big difference between Greenspan's first half. First half of his yeah. term and the second half, there was a reasonable number of dissents in the first half. Second half, the, you did not dare contradict the maestro. That, they became very anti-democratic, and I think Bernanke changed that for the better. But Bernanke wasn't as democratic as many people think. I mean, I was chatting. We just had our conference here, and we had a former Fed governor there, and he was Bernanke ruled the Fed with a much stronger really? fist than is the popular perception. That's very interesting. <laughs> a lot of people are unaware that, remember, Greenspan started in eighty summer of 87, yes. and I think it was either 90 or 91, in between meetings, on his own, he raised, he lowered interest rates. That was something the Fed chair was allowed to do, and the FOMC slapped his wrist and removed that authority. Uh, that was very early in his career, as you said. In the la- latter half, it, he was the maestro, and no one oh, yeah. challenged him. He was him. on such a high pedestal, which was unjustified, by the way. I completely <laughs> agree. Highly, highly overrated. So, let me ask you a, a, a related question: Who do you think was the most effective Fed chair, and who do you think is the is the person who really understood the job the best? Well, you have to say Volcker, don't we? I, mean, I don't, but I want you to. <laughs> uh, well, I I agree he, with he, you. He did the hard work. Mm-hmm. He did the hard work. We're going to uh, crank up rates, cause a recession, break the back of inflation, you know, I just, and begin a 30-year bond bull I mean, bull I just market. spent an hour into uh, having a, this kind of chat with him, actually, at our conference, which we had uh-huh. earlier this week. And... I mean, he is a product of his time. And the, 70s, the idea of sure. any inflation at all to him is still anathema. Absolutely. You know, so to the idea that that central banks should raise their inflation targets from two now to three or four, he thinks is just crazy. Negative interest rates don't make any sense to him. Right. Uh, so for him, inflation is still evil. Um, I don't have quite as strong a view as he does, but he he was the guy that, that set in motion a sea change in in the global economic environment for the better. So so let's let's follow up on that. We we've seen both in the United States and especially in the UK and and parts of Europe the austerity movement movement uh, I think at precisely the wrong time where where there's a need when private sector demand is soft as as Lord Keynes had has taught us uh, the government should step in and replace that demand. And when it's strong, the government should step out of the way. Do you agree with that? Do you think the Austerians uh, had it all wrong? And have they been a drag on uh, the economic recovery? In some places. But don't forget, we had massive stimulus during the downturn. In, so in 08, ha- 09. Mm-hmm. So the austerity, in a sense, was just pulling back from that extreme levels of stimulus 
that we had. Now, in, in terms in of what? In the Eurozone, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. It was bad. Yes. I mean, you made a bad situation worse. You, you know, when countries are already on their knees, you know, just trying to, to, to force austerity on them. It's just made, it's uh, bad. Just, it takes just, a bad situation. Just made it worse. Have they, has anybody in Europe learned the errors oh, of their I way? I think so. I think so. I mean, the... Europe, yeah, Europe has now <laughs> loosened the, the 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 constraints on fiscal policy to some degree. So I think we've turned a corner on that. I mean, we're not ready anywhere really to launch massive fiscal stimulus, mm-hmm. but we're we're past the austerity for sure. All right, so now let's jump into my favorite podcast questions that I ask <laughs> all my guests, and I have people prep for. So so tell us about some of your early mentors who uh, who guided your oh, career well, along. Well. This might be a slightly strange way to answer it, but in a sense, my mentors were more events than people. And by that, I mean... That's interesting. Look, I've been doing this for over 40 years, so I've been through a lot of regime shifts in various areas where even the the people that might have been my mentors, experienced people, were struggling along with everybody else what this all meant. So it, it was new for everybody. So, you know, we talked earlier about how I joined BP in 1973. So going through that first oil crisis when mm-hmm. everything had to be shifted was, there was nobody that t- t- to mentor me through that because they hadn't been through it themselves sure. either. That was a regime shift. Living through the inflation of the UK in in the 70s, um, where the unions were running amok, we had the so-called winter of discontent, there was mm-hmm. strikes constantly even the the labor government that was in power had lost control that was a lesson in the evils of of state you know excessive socialism if you like and then living through the volcker thatcher years where we saw complete reversal you know, that's very interesting you call it, it bringing inflation back down again you call it the volcker thatcher years everybody usually calls those the reagan thatcher years you're giving more credit to Volcker than yeah, you are well, to Reagan. I, am. I guess I am. Sure. I, I don't disagree with you. I just think it's interesting. I never hear people describe it that way. <laughs> um, Who else was a so, – what but, other but, you know, look, I've been lucky uh, over the years, and it's partly because BCA is, is a very well-respected firm for a very long time, to have met many, many smart people. You know, the Henry Kaufman, legends, if you like, the Henry Kaufmans, the Martin Biggses. I've met all these people. We've had them speak at our conferences. I've learned from them. I guess if I had to pick one person, I mean, obviously I've learned from lots of people. Tony Beck, who was the principal of BCA, he's the guy that hired me, you know, almost 30 years ago. Um, What did I learn from him? Well, BCA's focus has always been, you know, helping our clients. Uh, There's a big difference working for a firm that's selling research to working from a broker which just turns out p- bits of paper. Mm-hmm. So you have to add value when people are paying hard cash for what you're, you're doing. And you have to pass the so what test. Because a lot of economists just write stuff just for the sake of talking about the economy as if the economy is the end point. BCA, right. who cares what the economy is doing if there's no market significance to it? So I very much learned to... Try and always have some market implications of, of everything we wrote about. Not necessarily short term, it could be very long term, but bring it, make it relevant. And I, that's very much a, a lesson I learned at BCA. So what? So you, so you give an economic analysis, and if the client says, so what? It has to pass there, the so what test. And yeah. if there, there isn't a good answer, then that's a bad analysis. Yeah. That's not. That's not. not, it's a, not re- it might be great analysis. It's but just not value added. Yeah. What do I do with this? That, that's How really, does this help me make my investment decisions? So that that was a good lesson that you know from BCA. So let's talk about investors. What investors do you admire and have influenced the way you think? Um, okay. Look, <laughs> I'm very conservative. Um, maybe it's being Scottish. Whatever. Um, so I, I'm not a momentum, high-flying, following fads kind of guy. So I'm much mm-hmm. more attracted to the, the old-style Peter Lynch kind of view of investing, you know, investing for the long-term value. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so people with that perspective, you know, I guess you would put Warren Buffett in that category. Uh, 
much more than the the short-term, very clever traders, uh, John Paulson making a killing in the mortgage-backed. Wonderful. I'd love to be able to do that, but... It's not going to happen. That, that's you know, not going to happen. <laughs> so let's <clears throat> let's shift uh, gears a little bit and talk about your favorite books, whether it's investing-related or not, okay. fiction or not fiction. What books <laughs> um, do you enjoy? What books would you recommend? Oh, yeah, I was brought up with a, in a household where books were everywhere, so I've always enjoyed reading um, trash as, as well as... Mm -hmm. Better quality stuff. So, uh, give us some examples. Oh, well, forget the trash. But I mean, you I think could... my favorite book, uh, you know, from going back to the most serious investment stuff that I think anybody going into our business should should read. And it was written quite a while ago now. Is Charles Kinderberger's Manias, Panics, and Crashes? Sure, it's a wonderful read, and just describing. You know how these market overshoots and crashes occurred. It's mm -hmm. wonderful anecdotes. It's uh, easy to read. It's not a huge tome. Essential reading. Uh, that's one of my favourites. Uh, another kind of fairly obscure book that nobody paid any attention to when it first came out, but it, it kind of got popular a few years ago when QE uh, started, was by an obscure Scottish guy called Adam Ferguson. He wrote this book called When Money Dies. Oh, sure. And it was about German hyperinflation. Yes. Again, not particularly well written, actually, but wonderful anecdotes. Um, I actually have that on my bookshelf, yeah. and I've never read it. It's It's got great anecdotes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not... He wasn't a gifted writer, but it's not a big book. Um, but in terms of understanding the destructiveness of, of inflation, um, yeah, that's good. I think in terms of what we've beat, we went through the crash, there's so many books about the crash. And, of course, somebody called Barry Ritholtz wrote one about bailouts. Um, Bailout Nation, yes. Yeah, I've, but, I've heard uh, of that book. Yeah, you've heard of that one. But I liked... Uh, David Wessel's book in Fed We Trust mm -hmm. in terms of, again, it's a very easy read. It kind of takes you into what it must have been like at the Fed during that period with the sleepless nights and the panic and every day you go into the office and some, some other ghastly thing has happened. <laughs> so that's, I find that's a good way of capturing what it must have been like to be in the Fed at that time. A very recent one that I read is Mervyn King, the Sure. The most recent governor of the Bank, uh, Bank of England. It's called End of Alchemy. The only in, it's a little bit self-serving. Um, I think it's a good good book, but I wish he'd kind of said those things publicly when he was governor of the Bank of England. Why right. is he saying them now? If, I mean, he, it's kind of written as if he'd always known this stuff. And if he did always know this stuff, he didn't certainly act in the and a part of it. It's supposed but, to be a, a good <laughs> read too. Yeah, uh, it's good. It's good. Little In terms long. of non- I guess, you know, in the UK, they have this wonderful thing called Desert, Desert Island Discs. If you had to go to sure. Desert Island, what? So you could say de a Desert Island book for me, I suppose it would be Catch-22, Joseph mm -hmm. Heller. <laughs> that, that's some catch, that Catch-22. Um, it's just a good way of capturing the insanity of life sometimes. And you, war. You, you and just can't win. The insanity <laughs> of life, the insanity of war, of military organizations, yeah, of large institutions. Yeah. The only way to get out is you're insane. But if you say you're insane as a way of getting out, then you're obviously not insane for figuring that one out. So you're screwed. Um, pardon, not supposed to say that. Well, now we're in the podcast, so we could get a little... Okay. It, the uh, FCC limits what we can say on the broadcast <laughs> portion. Okay. But since anyway, this portion... I shouldn't have used that word. Very bad. Um <laughs> Actually, that was mild. We've had people oh say dear. much worse. Oh, my reading tastes are very eclectic. I mean, Give me some a, more a, a slightly things. bizarre trilogy is called the Gorman Gast Trilogy by Mervyn Peake. Uh, Gorman Gast? I've never even heard yeah, of that. Yeah, it's a kind of slightly fantasy. I was going to say, it sounds sci-fi. It's not sci-fi, but it's fantasy nonetheless. It's a sort of medieval-y kind of thing. But the, the, the descriptive writing is hard to beat. I mean, you almost feel as if you're there when he describes scenes and environments and characters. It's the most brilliant descriptive. Really? Uh, and it, it's kind of a, it's a gripping thing to read as well. Very obscure. Um, that's probably enough books. I All mean, right. I, I'm going to ask go you on. a question I don't get to ask many guests. What are your favorite Netflix shows that you've been watching? <laughs> 
Um, just finished watching the second season of Narcos, which is the you old know, Pablo Escobar, which I thought everybody was, seems to love that. It's it very well done. What um, what else? There's violence in there, but I don't think it's gratuitous because that's what happened. You know, right. it was like that. Um, there's some great BBC or British. Um, detective-y kind of ones. There's one called Happy Valley, mm -hmm. which is superb. Really? And it's an excellent uh, series, uh, Swedish-Danish co-production called The Bridge. There's three seasons of it. The now, Bridge. It's called The Bridge. Is that now, Netflix they, or they Amazon Prime? A, they might have done a US remake of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I would watch the original. It's subtitles, but the characters are so fantastic. There's a principal woman character that she's amazing, and it's a great gripping story too. Very watchable. The and Bridge it, is that the, Netflix or Amazon Netflix, Prime? Netflix. Mm -hmm. There's three seasons of that. Give me, give me one more. Um, oh gosh, one more. S Silk is another British one about uh, lawyers. Uh huh. You know, it's funny you mention um, Happy Valley. When I moved out of the city to suburbia, I don't know, 15 years ago, I was aghast that the local cable company did not carry BBC America. So, I, and I was a big fan of Doctor Who and I was a big fan. So, everybody knows about Top Gear today. But 15 years ago, other than a few Anglophiles, most Americans didn't know what Top Gear was. So I started hunting for how the heck can I get Top Gear, and it turned out that Dish Satellite Networks offered Top Gear. So as long, once I moved out of Manhattan, I've had satellite TV, Ooh. and B now I think you get BBC America just about everywhere. Yeah, but for a long time... It wasn't available. Yeah, they show a lot of, of American series. Like well, Star I see Trek Star Trek is on it. Yeah, and, yeah. But, but there's a ton of science fiction and there's a ton of sure. really interesting stuff on it. And half of the United States television is influenced by... There was a show that was so funny called Coupling. I don't know if you recall that. Mm, it yeah. was like... It was Friends... But funnier I'm and sexier. With the title. I don't think I ever saw it. So hilarious. Yeah. By um, the way, I mean, I the Netflix in Canada is different. We don't get the same content. We yeah. get much less content. So I, I assume this, the the series I mentioned are available in the US. Obviously, Narcos is. But uh, yep. So so let's let's turn back um, to your career for the last yep. few questions. What what is the most significant change you see in economics <laughs> since you joined the profession? Well. Information overload, data mm -hmm. overload. Look, when I started, so when I was in BP in the 70s, and even when I was in Wood Mackenzie in the 80s, I had to follow the US economy. Um, mm -hmm. There was no internet, of course. The data, we had to do the forecasts and analyze the economy. We had to wait for stuff to come in the mail. Really? The, the, it's called the Survey of Current Business. It's put out by the Department of Commerce with all the GDP data in it, right. which is, forms the basis of any understanding of the economy. That came out in the mail with an enormous lag. I can imagine. Enormous lag. You know, in terms of the monthly inflation data, employment data, you didn't really focus too much on that. You might get some headlines from the, from the newspapers, but there's no way of getting all the detail of that. Um, That's amazing. So now, now we're just besieged. You can get any data you want from anywhere in the world instantly in more detail than you've you know, got time to analyze. And I would ask you this, has our understanding of how the economy works improved or are the quality of our forecasts any better despite having all this data? And I would say unequivocally, absolutely not. And I spoke earlier about this egregious policy error over the last few years. Mm -hmm. So we're well, having all this data and us all this information in some industries, big data allows you, helps you do things better. Sure. It's not obvious in the world of forecasting that we have done a better job despite because we've become so short-term, people will spend more time parsing the employment data than thinking about what are the really important big issues here. So we've become way too short-term, way too focused on micro-analyzing data and not enough focused on catching the big secular structural shifts of what's going on. And I think that applies to policymakers, it applies to economists, 
and it's too bad. And I'm not confident that that's ever going to change now because we've created this big data world and that's that's what it is. I, I don't doubt that you might be right. I'm hoping that that comprehension is simply coming with big lag so that we'll eventually adopt to the era of big data with some well, understanding, look, but it's slow data and coming. Data is great. I love data. As I said, I'm a junkie for data. And in some industries, you know, the retail industry, if you've got minute-by-minute minute information on what's selling and what's not, great. But, but, but in the research side, just having a deluge of numbers, you spend all your time poring over all these numbers instead of just pushing them to the side and sitting back and actually just thinking about things a bit more. I'm with you on that. You you know my thoughts on non-farm payroll. I think it's wildly overrated. And yeah. every month we have this spasm, and then a month later the but numbers are adjusted. That. It's just that we have access to whatever this data times 100 mm -hmm. all over the world. So if it's there, you've got to look at it. And, so you and just spend all your time us. just looking at data <laughs> and not enough time thinking about stuff. Let me uh, let me change up gears a little bit on you. This is a question that that comes from a couple of readers. Have I? You know, I ask the same eight or nine questions to all my guests. That's okay. And then uh, a couple of readers have come up with some suggestions, and these are uh, this question I thought was interesting enough that I've worked it into our regular questions. And so, what do you do to relax? What do you do when you're not in the office looking at at numbers? I like being outdoors, which is great, given that I live in the Pacific Northwest, so I mm -hmm. bike. I try not to fall off. I did fall off two years ago and broke my hip. But I remember. Another, that's another story. I, I, I'm into hiking and biking, um, taking up bridge again, which mm -hmm. I play pretty badly, but I'm getting slowly better. You get and good I, enough, you could play with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Yeah, I'm playing that league. And I've started playing this game, which you don't, I think know about called pickleball, but some of your listeners will know what this is. It's actually one of the fastest growing uh, games in North America, and it's played with, it's like a cross between table tennis and real tennis, and it's played indoors, outdoors with a bat. and A bat, not a, a racket. Waffle, oh, yeah, a bat or paddle, if you like. Um, so we have and a, a wiffle, kind of a wiffle ball, and it's basically get the ball over the net and win the points, but it's it's less intense. It's not as fast moving as tennis, so it's for mm -hmm. aging people like me, it's easier on your body, but it's still demanding and it's fun. Pickleball. Pickleball. All right, we'll have to... Um, Check it out. We'll have to take a look at that. Um, traveling. I've got four grandkids now. That's, you know, that's... That so take, you're all That over. takes your mind off the market. So. Where Where are your grandkids? What parts of the world? I have uh, a married son in Toronto with two and a married daughter in Edinburgh, Scotland with, mm -hmm. with two. So. You Are you back and forth to Scotland frequently? Well, yeah, she only relocated there from Switzerland at the beginning of this year. So I will be going back. Yes, absolutely. And and you uh, you went to school not in Edinburgh, but in Glasgow. Well, so I, that's where I'm from originally. originally I was born yeah. in Glasgow. Yeah. So how often do you get back to Scotland? Well, I will be going back at least twice a year. I would think now that mm -hmm. our daughter's there. So my last two questions, and and these are my two favorites. I've saved for la <laughs> best for last. So if a millennial or recent college graduate came to you and said. I'm interested in a career in uh, economics. What sort of advice would you give them? Well, the profession has changed. Um, you know, a lot of corporations have done away with their economics departments. And, um, but, you know, that's still a, a, a good job and go for it. But um, be curious. Don't be so short term, you know, don't get, spend all your time pouring over the employment data, try and figure out what the big trends are, be disciplined, read a lot, don't that get locked, don't get locked into a view, don't think you've got it figured out because you haven't. I've been doing this for over 40 years and I certainly haven't got it figured out. That, that sounds like some pretty astute advice. <laughs> and our last question what is it that you know about economics and investing today that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you were beginning? Oh, gosh. Well, in terms of investing, um, a simple one, I guess, and I know it's out there anyway, but 
keep your winners and get rid of your losers. And I, I remember we had a conf, one of our conferences in 1995 and we had at least two speakers talking about tech. Uh, and they blew me away. They were just talking really? about all the exciting things going on in tech and cell phones. And I thought, wow, this is really, really cool stuff. I completely bought into it. I went out as soon as the conference was over and I bought Nokia, Microsoft, and AOL. So you're almost back to break even in Microsoft. Smart move, huh? You're almost back to break anyway, even in Microsoft. Anyway, it was really smart. Yeah. And, uh, they, they went up in 95, you know, after I bought them and more in, in 96. And 97, they kept going up. And I can't remember when in 97, I think in the first half, I thought, wow, they've gone up a lot. I made a bit of money here. So I sold them. Mm -hmm. I sold them before the real big game. I mean, they went parabolic. Right. After that. Now I probably would never have been smart enough to get out at the top, but I, just cause I had made a, a bit, I sold. Mm -hmm. um, you should have held them. In other I words. should have held them for longer. Um, so keep your winners. I mean, be, be obviously sensitive to signs that things are changing. You can put technical stop losses and things in mm -hmm. and you, I, I have been in the past guilty of getting attached to losers. Oh, well, maybe they'll come back. Sure. I've already lost so much. I just don't want to say, you know, which is stupid. Again, not being disciplined. Nobody so, wants to admit that they're wrong, so they hold on to the yeah, losers. So I've been guilty of that classic uh, problem, not being disciplined enough. And what about and on that's the... That's why I give most of my money to a, an outside money management firm to look after because they do a better job than me. So <laughs> what about on the economic side? What have you learned on the uh, economic side that you... Wish you knew when you began. Hmm, that's a harder one to answer. Um, we'll wait. Well, just uh, again, uh, would you say answer that to your earlier question? Not to get locked into a view. Mm -hmm. um, you know, forecasting is kind of all about looking to the past for guidance of you know you're looking for periods of, that look vaguely similar this is what happened then you assume well maybe that's what happened next time and models are all based on past relationships mm -hmm. but we've been through such incredible structural shifts you know, over the years that the past isn't a very good guide to the future and that's why the models have all broken down okay so be more sensitive to the fact that we're a rapidly changing world and relying too much on what worked in the past is is a mistake. I think that's a great answer. Martin, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I hope this wasn't it's too painful. It's been a pleasure, Barry. It's been a pleasure. Not too um, painful at all. We have been speaking with Martin Barnes. He is the chief economist at BCA Research. He is also an amateur fisherman and a professional <laughs> eel skinner. If you enjoy these conversations... Be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 107 or so uh, podcasts we've done. I would be remiss if I did not mention a few things. We love your comments, feedbacks, suggestions, etc. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Uh, I have to thank my booker, Taylor Riggs, my producer, Charlie Vollmer, my engineer, Reggie and my head of research, Michael Batnick. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC.